Hey, it's Rebecca, and you can hear new episodes of No Limits four days early on TuneIn. You may have heard, and if you're a loyal No Limits listener, you've definitely heard that we launched our first episode of RJ Answers, where I'm taking your questions. So if you want a chance to talk to me on No Limits about your career, you can send those questions to me at no limits with RJ Podcast at gmail.com. Again, that is no limits with RJ Podcast at gmail.com. I read all the emails you send there, and I'm looking forward to hearing from you. He wanted to shut us down because he had a binder, a really, really thick binder of all of the times that we had shipped, but he had every instance of when we didn't pay enough. And he's like, you owe millions of dollars of back postage fees, and we didn't have millions of dollars. From ABC, it's No Limits. I'm Rebecca Jarvis, and each week we're talking to the most bold and influential women playing at the top of their game, trying to demystify success and what it really takes to get there, and all the trade-offs. Whether you're looking for answers or you just want to hear a good story, you're in the right place. On today's episode, a once-aspiring neurosurgeon turned fashion tech guru, Tracy Sun. She's the co-founder and VP of merchandising for Poshmark, which is the largest social marketplace for fashion where anyone can buy or sell clothing from the convenience of their phone. Now, with another $87.5 million raised, they just raised this money, their total funding is nearly $160 million. So, how are they going to disrupt the $2.4 trillion global fashion industry? You're about to find out. Tracy Sun, welcome to No Limits. Thanks for having me, Rebecca. I'm thrilled to have you here. So you're the co-founder and the vice president of merchandising for Poshmark. That's right. And you helped create this company. How many years ago was it now? Oh, gosh. You know, seven years, seven years ago. Seven years. Yep. And we crossed paths very early on in the Poshmark story. It's incredible to me that it's been around now for seven years. I can't even believe it. Well, congratulations on all of the success. You have a really interesting backstory. So you were born in Kuala Lumpur. Yep. Raised in New York. Yep. How old were you when you came here? Very young. I was one. One year old. Okay. Mm-hmm. So you probably don't really remember much of nope. prior to New York. Um, you thought that you were going to pursue neuropsychology. Yes. What was interesting to you about that? Was that something you wanted to do as a kid or is that something you thought about once you got to college? Okay. So neuroscience is not anything anyone knows about when they're four. So when I was... <laughs> When I was four, my dad worked in the airline industry and would travel all over the place and, and bring the family. So as a as a really young kid, I wanted to be a flight attendant because those were the mostly women that I was looking up. I'm like, oh, my God, they're so pretty and they're so smart. Oh, you and, can drink soda. <laughs> right. That would have been my thing. I'd be like, oh, Coca-Cola all day long. Well, awesome. This, this is also when all the flights had those games for kids, the international yes. flights. So they were like my best friends. <laughs> I wanted to be a flight attendant. Uh, in school, I loved biology and psychology. I loved under I loved science. I was a geek, and uh, I loved understanding. It gave me answers to why the world is this certain. Because I I grew up um, immigrant parents, and I Chinese was my first language. So most of my childhood, I didn't really understand what was going on, and I had to use my my eyes and my ears rather than words. So I think I was just so curious, and that led to psychology. And then in school, when you're interested in science, you study science. You go into science. It was a very direct application. So all throughout college, all my internships were at um, like psychiatric hospitals, working with patients. And I started my career at Columbia Hospital working with Alzheimer's and Parkinson's patients. So, I mean... A far cry from fashion. And what was the turning point then? 
The turning point was uh, I would look at the people that were 30 years my senior at the top of their career. And they were very, very accomplished. But I looked at what they were doing every day, like what their day in, day out. They were looking at brain scans. They were working with patients. They were doing really important work. But I realized even though the topic interested me, the day-to-day life didn't. Because mm. being a, a, a doctor or in science, you are serving a, a, a much greater cause than just your career. You're forwarding science, right? Truth. Um, or patients and health. And for me, I like projects. I like brands. I like, um, you know, in a way it seems kind of shallow, but I like to build things and see them blossom. And uh, you, you don't really get that as much in the academic world or in the in the science world. So what did your parents say then when you said, I'm, I'm making a left turn? I think my parents were confused. Because <laughs> like Was science, doctor. conversation, I need you to sit down and hear this? Or? No, no. I mean, like I have Asian parents and, and they're, they're typical in some ways and not typical in others, but typical in that they understand what being a doctor is and they know that that's good. Um, and then I, I went to business school, so that was good too. It was very traditional. But then what I did from business school is joined this like Brooklyn startup graphic t-shirt company. This is Brooklyn Industries. At the time, it was just a men's graphic t-shirt company. And that confused them a little bit. Like you got this degree, this business degree, and you're joining a husband and wife team in Brooklyn. And at that time, Brooklyn was really dangerous and kind of gross. Um, (laughs) And I was like, yep, I'm doing it. This is pre-girls Brooklyn. Right. (laughs) Right. Okay, so you're you're at the startup Brooklyn Industries. What got you from there to Silicon Valley? So Brooklyn Industries was, um, I had never been in fashion before, and, and what, what that job taught me is what it was like to be in a startup. They were a startup. They were a fashion startup. They weren't a technology startup. There, it was like, okay, roll your sleeves up, do whatever needs to be done. So I basically, uh, my title there was merchandising, but what I did was I oversaw fashion design, graphic design, production, sourcing, warehousing, all the different parts, and it was a crash course in just fashion and how to produce stuff. Um so what that job taught me is how much I loved fashion. I never thought I would, but I loved it because of the psychology of why Why are people wearing this? Why is it that they choose a color more than another color? Or because I lived in New York, I would be on the subway and I would see people wearing the stuff I produce. And I'm like, I had an impact on their It was a small impact. That's cool. But some sort of impact. Um, and why I ended up moving to Silicon Valley is I wanted to, um, I wanted to continue this, which is fashion, but I want it to have it powered by technology because I realized that I could only touch the people who bought the clothing and we would slog and slog and work and get more and more people to buy it. But it was a very slow process when you're dealing with physical goods. So I started to get more and more into technology. I actually did another startup after Brooklyn Industries that failed as soon as we launched it, which is a whole other story. It was uh, a company called Established Today. It didn't get past like the first two months of launch. Um, but the lesson there is we were really successful in business and marketing. And we and it was a technology startup, but we didn't have any engineers on staff. We didn't even realize we were a technology startup. And that's when I'm like, okay, I get this. I get the power of this. At the time, I felt like New York wasn't that strong on the on the technology side. What year was this? This is 2009, 2010. 2009. This is, so this is basically... The Great Recession yeah. is upon us. New York is reeling. And I was working here at the time in financial news, and it really felt like, when are we going to actually get out right. of this? Are we ever going to truly climb out of this mess? Those were dark days. And that's when that's when the my, start, my first startup went under is because we launched. Uh, we had so much traffic. We were so successful. 
but our technology broke down. We couldn't handle the traffic, and we needed to raise more money in order to keep it up and running, but we couldn't because most of our investors were reeling from what was going on in the city, so they didn't want to they couldn't even think about giving money to a startup. So ended up closing it down. How tough was that? Like just so hard. Going from cre- uh, being in a place where you moved up really quickly inside of Brooklyn Industries, you had a big impact. You broke away. You said, I'm going to start something. I'm going to do this. And then it fails. You know, that part wasn't so bad. The part that was bad is that I had people working for me. And they believed. I pitched them on this dream. And they came with me. And they put everything into it. And even when I said, guys, we're shutting down. We, we didn't raise any more money. They're like, we'll work for free. And I had to tell them, no, you're not going to work for free. I can't let you do this. And so that part, the human part, was really hard. But um, but I don't know. The whole thing was fun. Even I mean, it was very stressful. <laughs> but in, in hindsight, I have these rose-colored glasses. I'm like, oh, that was really fun. That was a great experience. But that's good for anybody who's in that moment right now, who's who's facing whatever that is, because the fact that you can look back and say that. Oh, absolutely. And it took a few years. You know, I was it, it, I, I took some time off and, and rejuvenating because I was just working around the clock. Um, but in hindsight, that was really good training for um, for my next um, stage of, of career journey, which was Poshmark, because I had multiple of those types of crisis moments at, at Poshmark. And you have to learn as an entrepreneur to just keep going. So you get to Silicon Valley. Mm-hmm. What uh, Poshmark comes together. You and the co-founder come together. You have this idea, which is what? So our idea is to use a phone um, to enable a community of women to buy and sell fashion from each other. So pretty much the vision for Poshmark seven years ago is exactly what it is today. And when you first started pitching this idea, what did people say? Well, 99% of people said we were crazy for various <laughs> reasons. Uh, reasons could be, um, I don't, you know, what is resale fashion? I don't understand it. Um, you know, actually back then it was, you, you're crazy to bet on mobile. Really? Shockingly enough, yep. They said we, desktop is where it's yeah, at? Yeah, you should build a website. We're like, nope, we want to build mobile. And they're like, well, you need a website because that's where it is. Mobile's too new. Uh, especially mobile commerce, which wasn't quite a thing yet in the U.S. I think internationally it was starting to take off, but not in the U.S. Um, in, so to, 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 to um, give you framework, Instagram had just taken off when we were launching Poshmark. So for the first time, people were using their phones to look at photos and take photos. Prior to that, people didn't really take photos on their phone. Like selfies didn't exist. So now here comes these crazy Poshmark founders who are like, we're going to launch an entire ecosystem where people are going to take photos and buy and sell from each other exclusively on the mobile phone. And it took a little bit of um, the investors who did invest were ones who were who believed in the vision and knew that it was crazy, but loved that it was crazy. Because you made the move to Silicon Valley, Mm -hmm. I do wonder about the value of Silicon Valley. Do you think that do you still think that Today, it feels the way that it did then. And would you recommend that somebody who has an entrepreneurial idea go there to start it? Absolutely. I I think if you are interested in technology, because there's many entrepreneurs that don't touch technology, and and then maybe Silicon Valley is not right for you. But if you're interested in technology, it's a beautiful place to be because it's a culture where people listen to you and help you build your ideas. They have a shared understanding. They will connect you with the the people out there. There's so many people trying to do what you're doing, and it's collaborative and not that competitive. So it's interesting that it's a, Poshmark is fashion-related and we're out there, but at the end of the day, we're a technology company. 
what we do every day is we build software. We don't hold inventory. Honestly, to your point of if you're not a technology company, I don't know any company anymore that can exist as not being a technology company. I mean, like every single company, there's some component of it that is being enabled by I mean, technology. That's true. That's true. But I think if you are building like a direct-to-consumer brand, uh, you you may f- – and your users are in L.A. or they're in New York, it might be better to be closer to your users. Makes sense. So you're up and running. How do you get those first people, I guess customers, to use Poshmark? <laughs> One by one. (laughs) (laughs) Was that? So I think this is an interesting part of starting something because you have this big passionate moment of I'm going to create this. And then you you have the people who are the naysayers, but you have all the believers, too. Right. And then you put it out in the market. And it's like, (laughs) where is everybody? Where are they? It's so true. I think that... um, Early entrepreneurs get caught up because they're so excited about their idea and they forget that you have to do a lot of marketing to get people to your idea. The whole definition of a startup is that it's probably really new and that people don't know about it. And there's probably this really awesome innovation or twist that you invented, but people don't know about it. So you really, once you launch, you have to spend the time convincing, educating, and bringing those, in the case of Poshmark, users. So what we did is... Um, we held it. We, so we launched in San Francisco, and uh, I made friends with every single fashion blogger I could find in San Francisco. I just I learned how to use Twitter. I crashed all the blogger parties. I, I you know I stepped up my game with my wardrobe, and I went to <laughs> blogger events. And then I said, okay, we're going to now have uh, happy hours, and please come. So I invite everyone I knew. The first happy hour, we had one person showed up <laughs> for free booze. Yes, and we were offering free alcohol. We could only get one person, but that was our first user, and we were so excited. And we're like, okay, next week we showed up again, and two people showed up, and we did this for probably about six months. And now, when we throw events, you know, thousands of people are SVP. So it it really is one step at a time, one foot in front of the other. So you're up and running. What was the first crisis? More from our discussion after a quick word from our sponsor. Are you hiring? Join the over 3 million businesses that use Indeed.com for hiring. You can post a job in minutes and manage your candidates from an easy-to-use dashboard. Post your next job on the world's number one job site, Indeed.com. So you're up and running. What was the first crisis? Oh, gosh. Honestly, there have been many. One crisis that comes to mind is... um, Okay, so so Poshmark is a is a is a site where women and now men buy and sell from each other, and and then when they make a sale, they have to ship their items. And our thesis was that we have to make it super simple because people are busy; they can't go to the post office. Nobody has a postage scale. No one understands what zone they're from and what zone they're shipping to. And we don't want them to know. So, um, but the U.S. postal system, which is the shipping service we use, is was at the time not matching our model. And it was, no, you have to enter in how many zones you're crossing and, and you know, what, how many pounds. And so we're like, well, we don't want our users to do that. So we're just going to take an average of all of our weights and zones, and we're just going to pay one price, the average price. And then our users can just print out a label, and it's all fine. So a low moment was when USPS came to our office and basically tried to arrest us and shut us down. No way. Yep. They're like... Did somebody show up in a U.S. Postal Service uniform? Yes. Citizen's arrest? 
No, it's, actually, there's a there's a there's an arm of the U.S. It's, it was like postal inspector, and, and and I had to go receive him, and he flipped open a badge. It's like burned into my memory that he had a badge. It kind of looked like a police badge, but it wasn't because it said USPS <laughs> on it. But he looked very serious, and I was like, oh, okay, he means business. And he wanted to shut us down because he had a binder, a really really thick binder of all of the times that we had shipped. And because we took the average, there were some that were we didn't pay enough, and there's some that we paid too much. But he had every instance of when we didn't pay enough, and he's like, "You owe millions of dollars of back postal postage fees," and we didn't have millions of dollars, and so that was a crisis, a huge crisis. And how did you solve it? Uh, we we used it as an opportunity to talk to them and say, "Listen, look at what we're doing. Look at how fast we're going. We're going to improve your business if right. you do business with us." Exactly, and we want to partner with you. And I credit um, I credit some of the new leadership at USPS where they heard about our story, and we took it all the way up to the Postmaster General. And today, what we have is our own custom label, which is exactly what we wanted this whole time: is um, flat flat rate, one rate. From anywhere to anywhere, any, you know, anything is very flexible. No one needs a postage scale. And we're not going to get arrested anymore because now we're, it's in partnership with USPS as opposed to hacking wow. the system. That was a huge crisis moment for sure. Yeah. So you get past your crisis moment. You're growing. You're thriving. What was for you like the first major milestone of this is real? This is not just an idea. It's, this is going to be something big. I don't know. Are we there yet? <laughs> Do you not feel that way? How many millions of people are using Poshmark now? We have 3 million sellers. Um, so that's more than 1 in 50 women in America are using Poshmark to sell their items. And now we just opened up men's. So men's is growing. 20% of our users every day are men. So, yeah, we're going fast. I mean... It's a little bit of a curse of an entrepreneur is there's always so much more you want to do. Mm-hmm. It's re- you have to really discipline yourself to stop and look backwards and say, look at, all- look at everything we've accomplished. Honestly, I don't do a good enough job with that, but let me do it right now with you. Uh, yeah, we're, we're, we're doing pretty good. Um, I don't think there's one moment. I think it was just really a million steps of one foot in front of, in front of the other. Of the people who are now using Poshmark's platform, you have a, a, an incredible assortment of, of different women and now men who are using the platform. Um, and I've interviewed some of those people over the years, and they make a considerable amount of money. In fact, some of them are, are sort of entrepreneurs in their own right. I guess you could say every person who's using Poshmark is an entrepreneur in their own right. Sure. But there are some pretty incredible success stories with the platform. Tell us a little bit about those. Oh, my gosh. These mostly women, because that's where we started, are amazing. And you're right. They're entrepreneurs because they're blazing a trail that wasn't there before. Um, I just spoke with someone over the weekend who was a woman who uh, was a bookkeeper for for her husband. She lives in in Texas. Her name is Suzanne. And um, she started, she downloaded the app, and she's like, okay, well, I'll start selling stuff out of my closet, which is how almost everyone gets started. And then she went and started procuring inventory from, uh, she lives near Dallas, and she's like, oh, we'll just walk into the Dallas wholesale market. Let me buy some stuff. Let me try it. So she really did what you need to do if you want to become a boutique, but she did that on Poshmark. And what's crazy is now she's launching her own brand. She launched her own brand. It's been around for a year, and she's using Poshmark's system to distribute her brand to now a 1,000 other Poshmark seller styles. So now she is running, she's full-time, and by the way, she's a full-time mom as well. So she's got two jobs, um, and she's she's doing really well. And I, when I hear about stories 
like Suzanne or others, I am so, so proud. And it's it's honestly what gets me and the team up every day to, to, to keep moving forward. I think of Poshmark in somewhat similar ways as Instagram or Facebook, um, really, or YouTube, where there are people who have truly built entire brands off of the platform and use the platform and its scale to reach very, very large audiences. How are people, the most successful people, finding the biggest community and the biggest audience through Poshmark? So I I like how you frame that because the most successful Poshmark sellers treat Poshmark very similar to an Instagram um, because how you be successful is you make connections with people. And the more authentic your connections, the better you are. So it's not just about the number of – just like a social network, it's not about just gaining followers. It's it's being authentic and truly connecting with people. You build your followers. Then what happens is how Poshmark is different – is that these followers are following you because they want to shop from you. So it's very much commerce in mind. Um, yes, they can be inspired by you, inspired by your photos and your life, um, but really they they want a piece of what you're selling. So when you look back on these last seven years, what's been the biggest challenge? I think the biggest challenge is, you know, seven years is a long time, and it's particularly a long time when you are constantly innovating to stay ahead, and you can get really tired and so what's been really hard is those days when you're like, oh, is it another challenge in front of me? I'm so tired. I don't think this is going to work. You just have those moments of doubt. You just wake up with them, and you can't predict when they're going to happen. And those are hard because you kind of just want to give up. You know, you're kind of like, I'm tired. I could just sleep all day. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I'm fortunate in that. Do you ever do that? Sometimes. Sometimes I sleep a lot. Um, <laughs> You have to, right? You have to take care of yourself. But I, I think in those times, I'm so thankful where the team is so strong and we're supportive. And and that has been such a, um, if you ask me, like, what did you do that, what's the one thing you do that guaranteed success? Although success is never guaranteed, it's that we have a tight team and we understand that it's okay to be tired and take some time off and come back rejuvenated. And there's it's it's a marathon, it's not a sprint. And so we share that culture and that understanding that we're going to be there for one another. It's almost like my work family. So it's okay if I take a few days and go sit on a beach and and come back rejuvenated and ready to go. I'm sure you had a ton of advice. What's been the worst advice that you've received along the way? Okay, first of all, so much. (laughs) (laughs) More Um, more bad advice than good advice? I think the worst advice, it's kind of like a genre of advice. Um, and I, it's a pet peeve of mine, so you're, like, getting me, like, really passionate here, is when people give you advice that they actually want to give themselves, but they're giving it to you. So, like, a thing could be um, maybe they're scared about how fast your, your company is growing, so they say, you should slow down. It usually starts with you should. You shouldn't <laughs> grow too fast. It's not good, but, um, but really it's because they're scared, and so they are giving you advice. Or in my personal life, it's been like, you're over a certain age. You should be married. And I'm like, mm, are you worried about that? Because I'm not. I'm having a grand old time. So I, I think it's um, it's when people don't get to know you and don't get to know your circumstance and don't take the time to understand the challenge you're facing. And then they just give you advice that they actually want to hear themselves. That's the worst advice I've ever received. And how do you how do you manage to ignore it so that it doesn't derail you? Oh, man, that's a good question. Um I usually, you know, I'm a very authentic person, so when I talk to people, I'll, I'll follow up questions. And so if someone says, you know, you shouldn't add the men's category, it's too fast, I'll turn around and ask them why. 
And sometimes people have really good answers. I'm like, okay, I'll take that into consideration. But sometimes they, you know, you realize that they, they weren't really thinking about it at all. So it could be good advice. You just, I just probe a little bit more. Tracy Sun, thank you so much. Thanks for having me. This was great. It was so much fun. And now it's time for our No Limits Entrepreneur of the Week, where we feature one of our listeners who is building something of her own. And our No Limits Entrepreneur this week is Jennifer Waltzer Berkowitz, who was nominated by No Limits listener Jeffrey Robert Moss. Jennifer is the co-founder of Burke Boys Ice Cream and the president of R&J Advisory Group. She's based in Delray Beach, Florida, where she lives with her husband, Brad, and her two sons, seven-year-old Ryan and three-year-old Jake. Now, I love this. The CEO of Burke Boys is her seven-year-old son, Ryan. The company started because Ryan wanted to buy a Nintendo Switch, and Jennifer told him he had to use his own money. The idea at first was just to sell some pints of homemade ice cream to their neighbors, but it got so popular that they launched the company, Burke Boys Holdings, LLC, and created Burke Boys Ice Cream. They now have a virtual ice cream stand where they sell their homemade pints. These days, Jennifer spends most of her time making ice cream with her sons or coaching CEOs. Earlier in her career, she says she went through the trials and tribulations of being a CEO, successfully growing and selling a business, and so she uses that experience to help other CEOs through RNJ Advisory Group. Prior to that, Jennifer started a company called Backup My Info, BUMI which is a premium white-glove online backup and recovery business for the financial industry. She built this company into a multi-million dollar business and then sold it to J2 Global in 2014. Jennifer's biggest turning point was scaling BUMI to the point where she could sell it to J2 Global. At that point, she reached what she calls her freedom goal of being able to financially retire and choose how to spend her time and energy for the rest of her life. What a great freedom goal. She says that between managing Burke Boys Ice Cream with Ryan and Jake, who helps make deliveries, coaching CEO clients, and spending QT with her husband and sons, she's busier than ever, but in a very fulfilling way. Jennifer says that her game-changing decision was to focus on being the premium brand in the early days of BUMI rather than being the cheapest in the industry. And she says that she and Ryan incorporate the same premium approach with Burke Boys Ice Cream. Jennifer says if she could go back in time and give herself some advice, she would tell herself to be slower to hire and faster to fire. It's always about the people. When she was building BUMI, she says that she was sometimes lazy about firing someone because she was always dealing with other issues. But she realized that she couldn't grow the company the way she wanted until she finally got the right team. A team is everything. That's why I love mine here at No Limits. Jennifer Waltzer Berkowitz, congratulations on being our No Limits Entrepreneur of the Week. I wish you and Ryan the very best of luck with Burke Boys Ice Cream. Remember, if you or someone you know should be featured here on No Limits as the Entrepreneur of the Week, send me your nomination to no limits with RJ Podcast at gmail.com. I really love hearing from all of you and reading your emails, so definitely keep them coming. Also, if you like what you heard, don't forget to subscribe, give us a review, especially those five-star reviews. We do love them. They do make a difference. This is how people find the show. This is how we get ranked. It's so helpful when you take those few minutes to do it. Also, 
I'm on Facebook, Instagram, Snapchat, Twitter, and LinkedIn at Rebecca Jarvis. You can always reach out to me there using the hashtag no limits if you like. And I want to give a special shout out to the team here who makes this happen every week. My outstanding producer, Taylor Dunn, our awesome editor, Michelle Boncardo, my wonderful research assistant, Annie Osakwe, and the rest of the team here at ABC Radio, Elizabeth Russo, David Ryan, Josh Cohan, Andrew Kelb, and Steve Jones, all rock stars, all helping to make No Limits a reality. Thanks so much for listening. Have a great week. Hey, I'm Andy Mitchell, a New York Times bestselling author. And I'm Sabrina Kohlberg, a morning television producer. We're moms of toddlers and best friends of 20 years. And we both love to talk about being parents, yes, but also pop culture. So we're combining our two interests by talking to celebrities, writers, and fellow scholars of TV and movies. Cinema, really. About what we all can learn from the fictional moms we love to watch. From ABC Audio and Good Morning America, Pop Culture Moms is out now wherever you listen to podcasts.